0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you to all our listeners out there for joining us again this week for some more scintillating conversation. We do have fabulous guests, and we're hoping that Conversations with Consequences is to your liking and also doing you good. It does us a lot of good. We have a great show lined up for you today. I will be talking to my TCA colleagues, Ashley McGuire and Maureen Ferguson, at the bottom of the hour about what to do this summer with our extra free time, some entertainment ideas for for us and for the kids. But first, J.D. Flynn, who's the editor-in-chief of The Pillar, which is a wonderful Catholic media company, will be joining me. He's also a canon lawyer, and we want to talk to him about a couple of things that are going on. Um, First of all, uh, Archbishop Cordillon's refusal of communion to the speaker Nancy Pelosi for her avid embrace of abortion and constant cheer leading of that terrible practice while calling herself a faithful Catholic. And also we want to ask him, I want to ask him about the new Cardinal uh, named, uh, the new Cardinal of the United States, named by Pope Francis Cardinal McElroy of San Diego. Welcome to the show,
1: J.D., well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So, J.D., I want to ask you um, about all sorts of things that are going on. You always know exactly what's going on. You're always very much uh, in the know. But first, I wanted to ask you, I wanted you to tell us about The Pillar, uh, which is a relatively new publication. I want. I know that you're the co-founder and you're an editor, but tell us about The Pillar and why our listeners should read The Pillar.
1: Yeah, The Pillar is a Catholic media project that aims to be a, a voice of public accountability in the life of the Church, but also aims to be a voice of clarity, of 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 information, of, of inspiration, really just, uh, we, we can't cover everything, but um, we aim to cover the things that we can cover um, in depth, intelligently, and from a, a perspective of both um, being absolutely committed to telling the truth and also the perspective of our own um, faith as Catholics, you know, and, and at the same time, the craft of journalism. So it's a small journalism project that uh, we founded 18 months ago. You can uh, find it at pillarcatholic.com, and uh, we we have a podcast, we have uh, newsletters that you can have in your inbox, so you can have the news and analysis in your inbox right away. We have weekly interviews with all kinds of interesting people, in addition to um, digging into the life of the church as much as we're able.
0: And and, you know, it's interesting, uh, something you said, accountability. What do you mean by accountability? From a, from, well, from the perspective of a Catholic uh, organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we all can sort of remember back to 2018. We're coming up on sort of four years ago since the summer uh, in which revelations about Cardinal Theodore McCarrick emerged, in which the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report emerged. And, you know, kind of the watchword of the day, and I think we all remember this, but the watchword of the day was transparency. You know, there were a lot of questions at that time about just the governance of the church, um, the way in which the way in which ecclesiastical leaders had made choices in the governance of the church and the choices that they uh, hadn't made and um and, and and so sort of the watchword of the day was transparency and there were a lot of pledges for transparency and that is something, you know, which applies to a lot of issues. Of course, at that time, we were talking about and we're continuing to talk about sexual abuse and misconduct, both by bishops and by priests, and sort of the way in which those things are handled or not handled. But also, bishops talked about transparency with regard to finances and administration. And at, at the Pillar, we, um, or those of us at the Pillar take that those pledges seriously, we don't think that the bishops uh, uh, at that time intended for those kind of pledges to be platitudinous. We think that they wanted to mean it, but we also know that in any society, the church is a a society of both, you know, of both divine and human character, and in any human society, there is a value to a mechanism of public accountability, which helps leaders, which helps to ensure that leaders are acting with integrity, because all of us, whether through sort of, not even necessarily through malice, but for all kinds of reasons, all of us, when someone isn't looking, you know, don't have the same kind of expectations about how we act, or may not have the same kind of expectations about how we act. And so we think it's important. We think one of the lessons of 2018 is how important it is that there be sort of informed, serious, sort of intelligent, not malicious, not sort of just muckraking for the sake of of sort of promoting scandal, but um, serious sort of look at the, the life of governance in the church because it's a society in which all of us participate in which all of us hope will be led and administered according to its own norms, but also according to the gospel and to the truth of uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ.
0: You know, I, I find myself in deep agreement with you on the fact uh, that that the church is, is better if the church is transparent because people do hold themselves up to a different standard when they are... Being um, watched, right? And it's not. And it's not to say that there's dishonesty going on, otherwise, but that people really do, really do see themselves uh, differently.
1: It's just something to know that people want to know um, how the church is being led, and that the idea that serious decisions that impact the life of the church are of interest to all believers. So we think about our work as kind of public interest journalism in the life of the church, which is to say all of us should be concerned that the finances of the Holy See, for example, are administered justly and according to the norms of law and according to, you know, ethical practice or that dioceses in the United States are administered according to those same ideas. And that doesn't mean that all of us have to be sort of dive deep into the weeds of, of all of these issues. You know, for some people, it can actually be a stumbling block to faith to sort of follow these things with minutia. But I think, all of us know that, that that as a society, we want there to be some sense in which these things are in the public interest and not merely perceived to be kind of the purview of ecclesiastical leaders. And, and that doesn't mean that we have to sort of treat bishops with a hermeneutic of suspicion or we have to say, you know, we, we, we won't trust bishops or we won't trust the Holy Father or things like that. But it does mean that, that we know that, you know, any well-functioning society has measures of accountability. And, and one of the things that we learned, I think, in 2018 is that they're insufficient, for a variety of reasons, they're insufficient internal measures of accountability within the life of the church. And, you know, the Holy See has said that they're working to rectify that, and bishops have said they're working to rectify that. But internal measures of accountability do need to play a role, but I think at the same time, sort of well-intentioned mechanisms of accountability that are not sort of just hierarchical accountability can, can be a good thing. So that's what we try to do.
0: You know, but many Catholics would say that the church is already under so much scrutiny from the outside, from malicious eyes, right? And people, I mean, the church is a huge target uh, for for the left, especially as being one of the last institutions left standing that that stand for things like the integrity of the family, the natural family, I mean, and and other things that are becoming less and less uh, culturally um, accepted that the church stands for. So, how do you, how do you how do you prevent yourself from falling into the trap of being just an another critical voice.
1: Well, we're not out to get anybody, right? I mean, I think that's the number one thing is we're not out to get anybody, and um, and if we are, if you know, if our motivation becomes just to get anybody, or if our motivation becomes becomes ideological, which is to say, you know, we want to we want to sort of get the people who we don't agree with, or not, you know, not get the people who we do agree with, and that can happen sort of odd intra as easily as it can happen odd extra. There, there's there's ways in which there are ways in which ideology impacts those of us in the life of the church, you know, as well as externally. But if that becomes our motivation, you know, then we have to consider the way in which that will impact our own salvation. You know, our judgment, we, we think it's, it's one thing to sort of say that good governance is important and to, to be paying attention to good governance, it's another thing to say, well, we're going to sort of use scandal to pursue some ideological aim. And and that second thing, use scandal to pursue some ideological aim, unfortunately, it is a reality. As I say, I think odd intra and odd extra, and, and it should be distasteful to believers, I think. But that doesn't mean that just because people sort of misuse the notion of accountability, that doesn't mean that a properly sort of ordered and understood notion of accountability isn't important in the life of the church. And, and actually, the Holy Father said this, right? I mean, so maybe you remember that at, at the at the end of the world meeting of family. In 2018, Pope Francis was asked and of all these questions about McCarrick and what the Holy See knew and what the Holy See had done. And the Holy Father encouraged. He said, well, I think the journalists should do their jobs. And uh, we took that seriously. We thought if the Holy Father wants us to do our jobs, we'll do it and we'll try and do it as well as we can. And that means, you know, not allowing sort of, you know, ideology to color or shade the way in which things are covered, but not being willing to sort of be complicit in not asking questions or not raising issues because of what we think the implications for that might be. We, we think that to be, that the church should be held to a high standard because of what she proclaims about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that believers, well, all of us as believers, you know, we claim that our behavior, that our that our life in the world is a witness of, um, of the incarnate Christ. And if that's true, then it's reasonable, I think, to ask questions about um, the standards to which we hold ourselves and uh, and to expect that we'll be held to to a better standard because our lives are being measured as a witness against the veracity of the gospel. And that's, that's you know, terrifying. I think that's part of why St. Paul says we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Because our sins are not only our sins. When we, when any of us hold ourselves out as believers or as leaders in, in, in the life of the church or Christian leaders or anything like that, our sins can become an occasion of scandal. I think all of us experienced this, mm-hmm. you know, in 2018 and since, that, that our sins can become a real stumbling block for belief in the veracity of the gospel. It is harder for us to believe that the gospel is true when her messengers don't live according to it, and that's there are ways in which people might say, "Well, that's not fair. Everyone's a sinner." That's true. Everyone's a sinner. But at the same time, those of us who are believers should always be asking the Lord for the grace to live according, you know, according to to truth and and to be perfected, sort of, in morality and in and in our mode of life. And we should expect from our leaders kind of behavior which doesn't lead to scandal, but which leads to to God's glory.
0: You know, and maybe having this kind of uh, very clear-eyed scrutiny and understanding of the church from the inside from faithful Catholics um, will, will relieve some of the pressure you know, from people on the outside to throw stones at the church. Do you hope that that's yes. true?
1: I, I don't know. I guess I've, I guess, I mean, to be honest, I guess I've never thought about that. I, I just, I know that, I, I know that it is important, you know, for any, it's important to understand any community on its own terms. And that means that, you know, I think part of the problem with, the, with the, way, the way the church is often covered is that it's covered by people who don't understand it. I mean, just don't understand the life of the church or how it works or how it thinks through things or what it claims about reality. And so it's measured against standards that are, you know, that are not its own standards and, and not tried to sort of be understood on its own terms we think about the church on its own terms because the life of the church is our own life and uh, because we, the Christian life, is the, the gospel is the metric by which we, we judge all things. And so I think it's, I would hope that part of what we're doing at least, I mean part of what we're doing is just that we want to help people be informed about the life of the church, but I would hope that in as much as we sort of are public accountability journalism or public interest journalism, part of what we're doing is just to sort of raise the ways in which the church can better conform to her own standards and her own understanding of what's just and what's true and what's noble and what's good and beautiful.
0: Well, I've find- I've I've followed your work for a long time, and I know your work, and I know that you personally have that that deft touch. Speak the truth about the church in a way that that loves... The church and understands the truths that the church proposes and and you live those truths or at least you try like all of us all of us sinners do (laughs) if you're just joining us we are talking on conversations with consequences to jd flynn he's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the pillar a catholic media company also a canon lawyer with wonderful wonderful commentary on all things catholic and you wrote a piece just a week or two ago, I guess last week it must have been, in the Wall Street Journal, which I thought was a very, very wonderfully done piece on um, Speaker Pelosi and and the way that Archbishop Cordeleon has denied her communion. And I really liked it because too much of the discussion that I've seen on the issue is about the optics. And whether this was the right time, and how does this play into everything else politically? But I think that you got to the to the actual meat of the subject, which was the the, the reason, the Catholic reason for this. Can you tell our listeners about your piece and how how you worked out this? What do you think about Archbishop Cordileone?
1: Yeah, I, I think the question for you know a, a part of the a part of the sort of Sanctificandi of a bishop, the sanctifying ministry of a bishop um, is to sort of make judgments. Judgment is a bad word in our culture, of, of course, but but as it is, as it were, the the ministry of a bishop is to make judgments about the spiritual needs and the spiritual care of each person in his congregation, and that means making assessments of um, their spiritual health. And the church says, you know, sort of different things about the way in which different people ought to receive the the ministry of the church. And one of the things the church says is that Catholics who the, the law of the church says the Catholics who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are, are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. And the reason is because that not to be admitted to Holy Communion is intended to call people to conversion, to, to consider their life if their life is not being lived in accord with the teachings of the Church, and and to repent in, as much as repentance is needed, and to live in accord with the truth of the Gospel, and it's also intended for everyone else, because communion is is both reality and sign. Uh, the Eucharist is um, is the sacramental presence of, of uh, the sacramental body and blood of our Lord, the sacramental presence of Christ, and at the same time, our participation in the Mass and our reception of Holy Communion is a sign of our unity in Christ, and our behavior can, can divide us, you know, can, uh, our behavior can separate us from the unity of the body of Christ. And so the Church says that, and when we receive the Holy Communion at a time when we're not sort of living in accord with the unity of the Church and living in unity with the teaching authority of the Church, you know, that can, again, sort of give scandal. It can lead to questions. Why does the Church say that this isn't okay, but then say that this person, say by sign and symbol that this person is unified with the Church if they're, if they're doing things which are contrary to the teachings of the Church in a very public way, in a very insistent way? And so that's sort of where the notion of the Church's sacramental discipline comes from, that it's for the good of the person who is subject to some kind of sacramental discipline, and also for the good of the community and the church's evangelizing witness. And I think, you know, Archbishop Puerto Leoni says that's the metric by which he judged the situation with Speaker Pelosi, that, you know, he has tried to engage her on advocacy related to abortion for a long time, that she has in recent months sort of doubled down or even tripled down on her advocacy for legal protection, federal funding of abortion, you know, that she has said things like abortion is a sacred right, and that as much as he has tried to engage her on those things, that she's sort of rebuffed um, his his efforts there. And so, you know, what he said is it became clear that this um, advocacy, that this you know, teaching, this public advocacy and witness that she's doing is a kind of grave sin. And, and as he tried to engage her and she denied that, it became clear that she was their options as she was set in her ways about that. And so from Archbishop Puerto Leoni's point of view, he applied the. the the law of the church, the sort of sacramental medicine of the church with regard to that situation. And so I think, you know, the piece tried to say, you know, as much as we sort of try to think about this as it's partisan or or Archbishop Pelosi is trying to sort of like dig one to the Democrats or something like that, like by his own way of thinking about things, by the way of thinking about things formed in the church's theology and law, um, what he's trying to do is to work for the salvation of Speaker Pelosi in the best way the church says that he can, and also to work for the salvation of the rest of his flock to help them to better follow the gospel and live in accord with its dictates. So, that is, that is, I think, the way in which Archbishop uh, Corte Leoni has thought about things, and therefore, kind of the way for Catholics to understand what he's doing.
0: No, unfortunately, in America, there was the, the Kennedy Standard was set in which politicians right. could say that they were pro, uh, pro-life in their own Private life, but who were? But as um, as a political person, as a person who sets policy or enforces policy, they had no right to to bring their Catholic appreciation to the world stage or to the national stage. Do you think um, Do you think most Americans are able to 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 think past that or think through that as to how the, the the internal logic of that of that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. You know, because so the church says that not everything that's immoral should be illegal, right? I mean, I think it would be it would be silly if we held as Catholics that everything which is immoral should be uh, should be illegal. There would be just be too many laws, right? And you know, in our own in the church's own internal legal system, the disciplinary law of the church, in canon law, not everything that's immoral is illegal. So we can sort of take a page from the church's own exercise of governance to know that that's not the standard that we set, but that some things are illegal because they are you know are direct violations of the dignity of the human person. They're profoundly in innately and intrinsically harmful to the dignity of the human person and we can know most of those things not by revelation but by natural law and abortion is one of those things you don't have to be a believer you know to to know that um to know that a, a child who is conceived as a unique and unrepeatable you know <laughs> member of the human species and is therefore deserving of certain rights and that the condition of pregnancy does impose certain sort of real natural and obvious obligations on on a mother. you know a, a pregnant woman people say, well, a pregnant woman you know she, she shouldn't lose her rights by virtue of the fact that she's pregnant well anybody who's a parent for about two minutes knows that <laughs> pregnant being a parent is a huge imposition on your liberty and license to do what you want like all the time so yes it is the case that that being a parent in whatever sort of stage of parenthood is sort naturally comes with it a set of obligations that we have to meet we have to you know we have to feed our kids we have to nurse our kids we have to provide our kids shelter we have to listen to their you know dot 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 up and uh, and that's no less true for a child developing in utero and so you know I think think you can know all those things by by reason and by intuition, by experience, by reflection on the human condition and and the demands of love and and just the ordinary obligations of parenthood Um, well before sort of sacred revelation tells us something about the dignity of the human person and the the sacredness of, of human life and being made in the image and likeness of God. And so that's why the church says this notion that sort of everything, every position that our church takes. On anything is sort of outside the bounds of politics is not a is not a reasonable one. And abortion is one of those things which the state has a public interest in regulating because abortion is the direct killing of a human being. And generally speaking, states have the idea that it, they should prohibit the direct killing of human beings. That you know, this isn't the sort of thing that we should allow to go on sort of wantonly and unchecked. And abortion, you know, has become the exception to that. And people sort of say, well, it's a faith principle, but it, it's not a faith principle. Um, uh, the faith affirms the dignity uh, of human life but the immorality of abortion is is obvious you know, intuitively i think to all of us
0: Maybe maybe some people who are outraged by Archbishop Cordillon's movement against against Pelosi and denying her the sacrament would be uh, very impressed. On the other hand, by an Archbishop or Cardinal who denied the sacrament to people, uh, Catholic, you know, Catholic politicians who were against integration in in the civil rights uh, movement. Yeah, um, you
1: know, people bring up the idea of Archbishop Rummel who um, who actually excommunicated some some uh, Catholic leaders in the '60s because they opposed the integration of Catholic schools. I mean, I'll be honest. I would be impressed by a bishop who um, who opposed the reception of Holy Communion for a Catholic advocating for the unjust application of the death penalty, you know um, the, the the Church has very clear and deliberate guidance about the use of the death penalty, and um, and Catholic politicians who oppo- who oppose that deliberate guidance you know, manifestly and obstinately, I think the Church has uh, you know has a real and legitimate interest in considering the need for sacramental discipline in those cases. So I I myself would be very impressed by that. I don't think we should think that abortion is a unique issue in terms of the Church. Exercising um, the the her the, uh, the ministry of sanctification and the ministry of governance um, for the sake of the salvation of the community, even if it's sort of the one that happens to be standing out right now. But I mean that I, I would hope that bishops would consider you know in the context of their pastoral ministry the way in which sacramental discipline is intended to be a mechanism of conversion and not, not only on political issues but you know in our own in our own lives um, that those of us who are living outside of the teaching of the church but you know, deluding ourselves into thinking that we um, are living in accord with the gospel that, that that for the sake of salvation there needs to be some clarification to that
0: You know, part of it is, I think um, a lack of understanding of what communion means and the sacrament I know in my own culture, I'm Hispanic um, it's very common in Hispanic countries and to to v- for very few people to get up for communion on a Sunday right. because they yeah. haven't been to confession lately or there's some irregularity in their lives which they have not been able to resolve in order to make or themselves
1: they ate right before
0: they went to mass right exactly like we don't ju- I, I know it's hard it's funny because you see that people don't stand up you're like oh I wonder why they didn't stand up
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for right. communion exactly. yeah. but
0: here in America people everybody gets up in troops to get communion I think that's right. one of the reasons is there's like a catechesis on that um, uh, and people tend to think that communion is a kind of remedy for your for your ills, like a uh, some therapeutic uh, experience. Um, and you know, and obviously, in one sense, it is uh, what what beautiful remedy, no, the grace of God for every ill <laughs> that we have. But only if we're uh, prepared, possibly positively prepared to receive it, otherwise it's yeah. it's worse than nothing.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. There is a way in which um we, we sort of unreflectively receive Holy Communion. And so a person who doesn't go for Holy Communion is kinda of like, Wow, what did that guy do?
0: Yeah. Um you know. <laughs> How about when I don't know how old your kids are. How old your kids are, J D, but when one of your children doesn't get up for communion, you your the father and the mother look at each other in horror. <laughs> <I
1: see. laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, yeah, no, I know exactly, I know exactly what you mean, yeah, so it's like, um, so there is, I mean, the Second Vatican Council really, really encouraged Catholics to receive the Eucharist more frequently, because um, the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life, and reception of Holy Communion is, you know, is the spiritual nourishment par excellence, um, but um, it is the kind of thing for which the Church also says that one must be suitably disposed, and I think we're we're so, um, we have, the, we can develop a transactional relationship with the Mass, where it's like, and, and you saw this a lot during the pandemic, actually, right? You, oh yes, like, well, it was very much mass. brought to
0: mind with the pandemic. I yes,
1: I go to mass because I get the thing, right? Um, and uh, and and actually, I go. The, the, what the church says is, I go to mass because I have an obligation to God of sacred worship, um, regardless of whether I, I I receive the Eucharist or not. I go to mass because of my my obligation to worship the Creator of all things. Um, but but I think we saw this way in which sick it, It's a, it's a really deep catechetical problem, because the notion of Mass as sacred worship, I think, has been replaced often by the notion of attending attendance at Mass for the sake of getting the thing. And that kind of transactionality, I think, cheapens our opportunity, you know, both to, to, to fully understand and participate in and receive the Eucharist um, in its fullness, but also um, to give God the homage due to Him in, in, in sacred worship in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. There's so, also
0: there's also a therapeutic sense to it, right, That's it, that's infected people's minds? I go to Mass because it makes me feel wonderful.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, yes, I think that's right, you know, like, that's where I'm being fed, and yeah, I mean, the Lord does want to feed us in in the Mass, to be sure, we are being fed there, but the Lord wants to feed us in many, many ways, and and the holy sacrifice of the Mass is just that, a sacrifice in which the priest offers the sacrifice of the Eucharist, and we unite the sacrifices of our lives for that, for the sake of worship to God, through Jesus Christ on the cross, the sacrifice, the the Paschal sacrifice of Christ on the cross, so, you know, I, I think... I, I think we have a lot to, to learn and to reflect on as Catholics in America, probably Catholics in the West, about what it is to go to Mass and, and, and what it isn't. And, and, um, and there's and, and I do think there is an overemphasis on that. That's very well said, that sort of therapeutic notion. Of the mass.
0: J.D., we only have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you this before, maybe we don't have time, so much time for it, but I wanted to ask you about the Pope's picks for cardinals, specifically the one the one uh, bishop he chose for us, which is Bishop McElroy of yeah. San Diego, yes.
1: Wow, um, Bishop McElroy, the Bishop of San Diego, was named a cardinal on Sunday, and um, in a press conference that he gave on Monday, he said he said that he believes that he was made a cardinal because of his closeness to, to the Pope and to the pastoral priorities of the Pope, and I, I think that's true true. Um, bishop McElroy, you know, is not the bishop of a large metropolitan see the kind of place that usually sort of gets the cardinal, as it were. But he has been someone who has been or outspoken sort of Call to for the bishops to consider the message of Pope Francis in their magisterium. Now, it, the pick has been, I think, a little bit controversial because Bishop McElroy is sort of regarded by a lot of bishops in the United States as a sort of member of the sort of progressive wing of the American Episcopate. And there have been, you know, some real over the past, you know, this. and Your listeners know this over the past year or eighteen months. There have been, there's been a lot of division among the U.S. bishops mm-hmm. over, you know, this question of communion, over a number of other questions as well. And so Bishop McElroy, who is regarded as, uh, has been sort of outspoken in that division. I think, you know, there's some bishops who found that to be kind of a pretty surprising move, all things being equal. So that's why there's been division over it. Honestly, I think that there will continue to be, you know, that there has been tension and some of that tension has really bubbled to the surface in a way that it hasn't in the past or hasn't in a long time among the U.S. bishops, and I think that there will continue to be that tension um, bubbling to, to the surface. But the way in which sort of uh, Bishop McElroy's appointment to the College of Cardinals will impact that, you know, perci- precisely, I think we, we have to wait and see.
0: Well, we shall wait and see and we will pray for the best. And- and uh, pray for all the, all the new Cardinals and, and all their, their good work going forward. Thank you, JD, for joining me. And where can our listeners uh, access sure, the Pillar you, and all I, your good work?
1: I hope that listeners will check us out at PillarCatholic.com. And we are supported by our subscribers. We're a subscriber-supported media project. So I hope if you like uh, what we do at PillarCatholic.com, then you'll consider subscribing. And, uh, and you get our newsletters in your inbox and other things from us and, uh, and help make our journalism go. So uh, PillarCatholic.com, or, and if you want to subscribe, PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my two good friends and colleagues from the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire. And I thought I'd invite uh, my co-hostesses on so that we could talk about the beginning of summer and some ways that we could use our extra free time wisely. You know, just yesterday, I'm in deep, I'm in deep Florida, deep South Florida. So I'm not sure how it is now in the, in the Northern parts, but yesterday around, 8 p.m. or at maybe 7:45, maybe would be more fair to say it was bright outside it was like noon <laughs> and I couldn't believe it because I was already tired like ready to put on my pajamas and then I remembered that in the summertime we have longer hours and and uh, usually fewer responsibilities because things get quiet in the summer so I thought we'd talk about that what do we do with all this extra time so that we're not wasting it doing stupid things welcome to the show ladies we're glad to be on with
3: you. I, I love this topic, too. I love this time of year. I always feel like as we get to the end of the school year, I just can sigh a big sigh of relief, you know, sort of going into the more lazy days of summer. And I just love taking advantage of that extra time to you know, have quiet time at the pool with the kids or at the beach, and um, you know, picking up those books you never get time to during the busyness of the school year. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing a
4: show on this topic. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny though because I don't know if it's because I have really little kids, but sometimes there's a part of me that a little bit dreads. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. Because I hear you. My house is so quiet during the day, and I'm thinking, oh, I've got about eight days of this left before it's going to be. From sunup to sundown, somebody's always needing help, but jokes aside, I agree that it's nice to kind of slow down because definitely at the end of the school year, it seems like there's this burst of activities that's almost dizzying and, you know, I I feel like I can't even agree to do the littlest thing without looking at my calendar because I'll I'll double book myself because of all the things that um, kids have going on and, you know, I think there's definitely, I definitely think that using time productively during the summer is really important. Um, but at the same time, I think, and maybe this is part of living in Washington, D.C., um, with, you know, in the world of overachievers, there's the danger of overscheduling, too. And I say this because this morning, a mom on a text chain of mine sent a list of camps her kid was going to, and I was sort of dizzied, and I thought, oh, gosh, did I not doing up here because i you know my son the same age is only signed up for one week of camp (laughs) and oh my gosh and there are all these stem camps and you know insect camp and um
0: but but what happened what happened to those lazy summers where a child has to figure something out like Oh, maybe I'll go outside and play tag with the friends from the neighborhood or I'll climb, I'll finally climb that tree that's been beckoning to me. Children don't seem to have
3: that time anymore left to their own devices, right? That's exactly right. That unstructured time is so important for kids and especially when they're little. I've heard the advice that when your kids are little, you should let them be bored so that they you know, engage their creativity and come up with their own games. Now, by the time they're teenagers, you don't want them to have that extra time on their hands. And they need to, you know, have a pretty hefty work schedule uh, by the time they're teenagers. But when but when they're little, it's just fantastic to just send them out into the backyard, maybe send them out with a popsicle and let them go. What do you think changed
0: in the, in the parental imagination?
4: It's hard to say. I, I think, you know, our society is developed such an emphasis on accolades and achievement and um, has really sort of lost sight of you know childhood in general. I don't know whether it's you know all the screens that kids are on or you know as Maureen was saying, the fact that kids don't really have time for just unstructured play, which is where they become so that's where they learn to be creative and and think creatively and um, play cooperatively and, and show initiative, you know, I think it's sort of part and parcel of just our society's drift towards, um, hyper scheduling, hyperactivity. Uh, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to resist. I mean, you know, the hashtag resist, but you really kind of have to. And I, it's hard too because everything's so expensive. I can't believe how expensive summer camps are. And so, You know, I think it's important that parents know and hear that you don't have to spend a fortune on your kids' summer for them to have a wonderful and memorable summer. My my summers I can't even remember camps when I was a little kid. I just remember swimming in a pool, running around with my siblings, reenacting Disney movies as plays (laughs) that I
0: directed. A lot of a lot of make believe a lot of make believe play, right? I remember a lot of make believe growing up that I feel like I see young children now. They don't. They're not playing these make these elaborate make believe games that, that to me were very vivid and, and, I, and very enjoyable. I remember very much um, having these elaborate uh, these elaborate constructions in my mind that were so pleasant. Um, And I and I think contributing to sort of a creative personality and and the the idea that you can, you know, go out into the world and and do interesting things because you've already
3: you've already dreamed them. And, and, you know, kids are so plugged in uh, and, you know, we adults are so plugged in and our pace of life is so frenetic that we are we're kind of losing our ability to just be still, to be quiet and, um, and you know, I used to talk about the expense of a lot of these camps, Ashley. So one of the things I used to do when our kids were little was create my own camp, which was virtually free. And we called it Camp Ferguson. And the kids always loved it. And I would plan a week of, you know, maybe museum outings, maybe some day trips. Maybe if we were doing um, colonial things, we would go down to Williamsburg or drive up to Philadelphia and do Revolutionary War things. Um, but a, a lot of times they were just simple little things. But, um, but my kids always loved, you know, just piling in the car and driving off to some Ferguson family adventure and just, you know, calling it Camp Ferguson <laughs> somehow made it a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, what I also love to do in the summer is come up with a little book club for my kids, either with their friends or just them And, you know, I've always enjoyed someone, a wise person gave me the advice to read your children's summer reading with them because it's just it gives you great things to talk about the different themes in the book and the virtues of the character. And, um, you know, they're also easy little books that you can actually finish in an afternoon on the beach. So um, you feel very accomplished reading all these books in the summer. But um, but I've always enjoyed reading my kids summer reading with them. Um, just to provide, it's a great conversation piece. And Ashley, I know you, um, you led a book club, a kids book club this year, which my daughter was able to participate in. And it was just darling. You pulled different themes out of the books and we baked, the kids baked things. And um, do you want to share that with our listeners?
4: Yeah. So that was a wonderful thing that we started actually during the pandemic and have been doing almost monthly ever since. And um, usually, we have a different theme, and you know, the girls are actually more like nine, ten, eleven, but a lot of the books we read were classic picture books. and we really tried to emphasize books that were classics or books that had beautiful art. And it you know, it shows that those books still really do capture the imaginations of kids even as they get older. and, And I I also have to second the reading with your kids thing. My daughter and I just finished reading Anne of Green Gables together, and it was a tough book to get through. It's very, you know, a lot of it is arcane, very advanced book, but reading it together, A, was a wonderful experience for me, um, but also, you know, as, as you said, Maureen, turned into a great conversation piece for. We're just talking about, you know, the transition from girlhood into young womanhood and, you know, being independent and the wonderful themes that are in the book. And so I think, you know, for people who are struggling to pull together a reading list or not not knowing where to start, it never hurts to just go back to the classics. You know, the ones that have the the shiny gold medal on the front, the Caldecott or the Newbery winning books. A lot of times libraries will have a section just with those books And I find that it's the creme de la creme, why look elsewhere, because Those books are timeless and excellent, and and kids really do love them.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Ashley, you mentioned uh, Anne of Green Gables, and it reminds me of something that I was hoping we could get to is um, entertainment the for for adults and it reminds me because I saw the there's a Netflix Anne of Green Gables show and I I could totally recommend season one but do not go to season two <laughs> because season one is very uh, beautifully attuned to the book and and that lovely aspect of the book which is the openness of the couple that adopts Anne and the very and the very real the very real uh, show the way it shows the the difficulty that they that they're that they're taking on by taking on a girl uh, like Anne um, that in, a, in a very real sense that I think sometimes adoption glazes over, the, the romantic sides of adoption glaze over. Um, but anyway, I recommend to our listeners season one, but don't go to season two, because in season two, the producers decided to go far away from, from Mon- uh, what was her name? Montgomery, right? Anne Montgomery? L M Montgomery. L. M. Montgomery. Mm-hmm. L M Montgomery's vision uh, and her beautiful stories. You know, my daughter was my oldest daughter was a huge fan of Anne of Green Gables. She has the the whole series, and the the, the stories continue. They're very pretty. What what um, ladies? What uh, what other things would you recommend that you've seen lately for movies or other kinds of entertainment for this these long summer days?
4: Um, well, to piggyback on the Anne of Green Gables thing, I would actually recommend digging up the the old one from the 19, I think it's from the 1980s or 90s. I've now been watching that with my daughter. And between that and of Avonlea, it's almost eight hours of just the best of the best of television. Wow. Uh, and there's a couple of old series like that. Um, the original BBC Pride and Prejudice is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. I I'll sound like a broken record, but I'm, I'm kind of on a, a classic streak and actually We ran out of good, suitable content for family movie night with our kids, and we've now been watching Ben-Hur, which is another four-hour movie, so if you break it out into a a few nights. Um, But, you know, I think people think kids won't be interested in that older, slower content, but I tell you, my boys keep asking about Ben-Hur, and they can't wait to watch some more of it, and as soon as it ended, they wanted to go, you know, do sword fighting, and so I think, when in doubt, Dust off the classics and thankfully even some of the, you know, um, streaming services that have their flaws like Disney and Netflix, um, you know, you can usually find things like Sound of Music, Oklahoma, great old Rodgers and Hammerstein movies um, for free on a lot of those services.
3: You know, speaking of the classics, I've been enjoying rereading a lot of classics. I'm in a mom's book club, and we've been studying marriage and kind of picking a a different book each year on marriage, and we've gone through Anna Karenina and Kristen Lovren's daughter, um, and, and these are books that you know I had read when I was young, either in high school or college, but... You know that phrase, honeymoons are wasted on the young? I feel like sometimes these classics are wasted on the young because Mm -hmm. you're kind of too young and inexperienced to really fully appreciate them. So, And, of course, young kids should be reading them to be introduced to all the concepts. But but I find rereading some of those classics as an adult, they're so rich. I mean, they're the type of book you could just read again and again. But another one we just read is, um, this is a newer book, but Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. It was fantastic. Just really, really beautiful. Um, another one we read is the end of the affair by Graham Greene, which is uh, that's a little bit more story of conversion, but um, but again, a really, really beautiful book. And and you know, a lot of these are are great. They're not light beach reads, but they're great beach reads.
0: Hmm. And what about some some modern fare that uh, people that that is not just entertaining but also edifying. Any, any suggestions, ladies?
4: Well, we just finished watching the latest miniseries done by Julian Fellows, who did Downton Abbey. And by the way, I've heard there's a new Downton Abbey movie out. Uh, that's on our list to see. Um, I find Downton Abbey never disappoints. But he did a movie called The Gilded Age about New York City. I'm sorry, a, a series. And um, all the episodes are out now. So if you want to binge it, you can. But... Uh, A, it was really interesting learning about that time period in American history. And, you know, true to Julian Fellows, everything, the costumes, the sets were just fantastic. And there was some great acting. You know, there's another, you know, sort sort of similar older feisty woman character who gives the show a lot of zest. But I thought it was a good show, too, because it, you know, it gets into sort of. Uh, a lot of the guardrails around courtship and why they matter and, you know, why they're really set in place to protect women. And so I thought there, you know, it wasn't just pretty fluff. There was some good themes that, you know, gave my husband and I things to talk about.
3: Tracy, I think you said you've seen Operation Mincemeat, which I have not seen, but I'm looking at any Colin Firth movie I want to see. Yes, he's such a great actor.
0: So Operation Mincemeat is on Netflix now, and it's a spy movie, uh, apparently about true account, a true account or some true happening that happened during World War II uh, of British spying. And uh, there's a wonderful backstory uh, in the movie about um, sort of an impending affair to people that, that um, are, one of them is married, and they are very interested in each other, and you can see the romance starting to bloom and then uh, backing away from that because it's it's wrong <laughs> because one of them is married. And I thought that was so refreshing and, and so lovely to watch and treated in such a serious and, and really thoughtful way, uh, which is not something you often see in modern movies when, when things like that come up, romantic you know. um, entanglements.
3: Not to give any spoilers with the new Downton Abbey movie, but I did go and see that with my older daughters. And there, there's a similar thing there. Mary has learned a lot over the years, I'll just say.
0: <laughs> Isn't it wonderful these days when you see something modern that, that respects all, all the truths that we know are true about life and family and, fam- and marriage uh, all the wonderful guardrails, as you mentioned, Ashley, that make things really so delightful within the guardrails, right? Because once you erase the guardrails, you're mm. just sort of living in anarchy and disorder and then nothing is delightful.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, there's a new Marvel movie out too, which I have a hard time keeping track of all the Marvel movies, although my teenagers keep track of all of them. But apparently it's, it's essentially about motherhood and it's one of the highest grossing movies of the year, which is so interesting here where... On the verbs of the on the verge of uh, the Dobbs decision, um, and you know, it's just interesting that the two are happening around the same time. That this movie about motherhood, apparently, again, I haven't seen this one yet, but um, but it's it's apparently striking a nerve with people. Mm. Well,
0: you know, I think what, what this teaches us is there are a lot of things out there to keep us entertained this summer and to uh, use up our, our extra hours of daylight and, and relaxation time. So thank you, ladies, for joining me today to talk about our, our wonderful plans for the summer, which I hope are not too complicated and lots of rest for all of us. That's right. Great
3: to be with you. Simplicity. I'm, I'm looking forward to the simplicity of summer.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm even feeling more relaxed after this conversation. <laughs>
3: wonderful
0: Ashley I hope it lasts <laughs> every morning the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you don't let the world take you by surprise subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic Association and now Father Roger Landry offers us as is customary a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel
2: this is Father Roger Landry and his- It's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on Pentecost Sunday. So we celebrate the birthday of the church and the anniversary of when the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles and Mary as tongues of fire. The church this year has us consider the words of Jesus during the Last Supper when he promised, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. Adding the advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. That word advocate, parakletos in Greek, means a helper, consoler, champion, upholder, supporter, proponent, protector, someone who speaks on our behalf, a lawyer or defense attorney. And this term was used in that context in Greek and Roman settings. In both languages, it meant literally someone called to stand beside us, to intercede for us. Jesus was our first advocate. And he says that God the Father sends us the Holy Spirit as another advocate to be with us always, to help, console, uphold, support, protect, and defend us. The Holy Spirit will give us a specific form of assistance. Just as Jesus would tell Pontius Pilate the following day that he had come to give witness to the truth, so he told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would be the spirit of truth, would guide you to all truth, teach you everything, and remind you of all that I told you. The Holy Spirit, like Jesus, would be our advocate not by serving us like a mob attorney tries to defend his criminal mafiosi, but by helping us to know the truth, love the truth, live the truth, spread the truth, and enter into communion with Jesus who said, I am the truth. The Holy Spirit will help us to live in the real, real world together with God, even in the midst of environments that would be filled with lies or following the infernal inspirations of the one Jesus calls the liar and the father of lies. How much we need the Holy Spirit's help, how grateful we need to be for the gift of the Holy Spirit to tell us the truth about God, about ourselves, about others, about the world. We're living at a time of assaults against the truth, not just opposition to reveal truths or the truths of the natural law, but a time of spin, of fake news, of believing and spreading lies. We see this attack against the truth, not only in the disinformation campaigns of communist governments, but also in the euphemisms that support, for example, the practice of abortion, or in the attempt not only to allow those who are confused about their identity to think that they're girls trapped in poised bodies and vice versa, and to force everyone else to lie by pretending that they really are what they confusingly think they are. That's why the great refrain of Pentecost, taken from Psalm 104, is, Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. In the context of so much pain and violence flowing from hatred, so much despair, pain, and suicides flowing from meaninglessness, so much confusion flowing from politically correct lies, as well as a failure boldly to teach the truth, we need the Holy Spirit to come to renew us, and through us, the Church and the world. We beg for this renewal in the beautiful sequence, the Veni to Spiritus we sing before the Gospel. In it, we beg the Holy Spirit to come with divine light to shine within us. To fill the hearts of the faithful with rest in the midst of fatigue and solace in the midst of tears, to cleanse what's dirty, irrigate what's arid, heal what's wounded, bend what's rigid, warm what's frigid, and put back on the straight path what's gone astray. Ultimately, to give us the gifts of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, prude courage, reverence, and awe of the Lord, so that we might live a virtuous life, grow in holiness, and come to eternal joy. The Holy Spirit is ever the source of the renewal in the church. How does He renew us? We can focus on four ways. First, He renews our prayer life. The Holy Spirit helps us to learn how to pray, coming, as St. Paul says, to the aid of our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us. He helps us to learn how to pray so that our life might become an existence-made prayer and enable us to live our whole life in union with God. St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words, that he helps us to cry out, Abba, Father and pray as beloved sons and daughters who know that the Father, who cares for us more than lilies or sparrows, will never give us a stone when we ask for bread. The Holy Spirit wants to renew us, we can say, by blowing His strong driving wind within us the way a trumpeter makes music. Second, the Holy Spirit wants to renew our life through the guidance He gives us through His gifts and fruit. Saint Paul tells us in his letters to the Galatians and Romans that there are two basic ways to live. To live according to the Spirit or live according to the flesh. To live by the Spirit means that we're constantly seeking what God, the Holy Spirit seeks. To live by the flesh means to place our heart, our treasure, in the things of this world in money and material possessions, in carnal pleasures, in fame, power, influence, and in superficialities. The Holy Spirit wants to renew us by helping us to put to death in us whatever lives by the flesh so that we may totally live by His inspiration, His in-breathing, as Mary, the apostles, and the saints have. Third, the Holy Spirit wants to renew our loving service of others by helping us to transform our gifts into spiritual weapons for others' good. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has given each of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of the whole. He's given each of us a spiritual gift so that we might carry out the different forms of service and different workings necessary to make Christ's body, the church, strong. The Holy Spirit wants to help us to recognize what our gifts are, and just as importantly, to use them to build up our family, to build up our parishes, to build up the church, and help it fulfill its mission in the world, to build up up our neighborhoods, cities, and towns, and our country. The Holy Spirit wants to renew us by helping us to recognize we're called to be contributors rather than consumers, givers rather than takers, co-responsible participants rather than seated spectators in the continuation of Christ's work. Finally, the Holy Spirit wants to renew us specifically in our capacity to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit came down as tongues of fire upon the early church to symbolize that he wanted us, strengthened by him, to use our tongues to proclaim the gospel with ardent and love. We see how the Holy Spirit helps simple men like Peter and the apostles speak powerfully and effectively in front of vast crowds. He wants to do the same with us. By baptism and by our confirmation, we've all received the same Holy Spirit that the apostles received on Pentecost. So that just like the apostles left the other room, upper room, we might burst through the doors of our homes and churches and use every means we have to announce Christ's kingdom. The world needs the gospel. If the face face of the earth is going to be renewed, if Uvalde, Texas and the Ukraine will be renewed, and the Holy Spirit wants to use us for that renewal. That's why the Spirit of Truth comes to guide us to everything, to guide us to all truth, to remind us of everything Jesus taught us. That's why he comes as helper, consoler, champion, upholder, supporter, proponent, and protector not by coincidence that the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles in the upper room where 53 days earlier Jesus celebrated the last supper. Pentecost is not a past reality for the church but an ever-present one. Pope Benedict said in 2008 the Eucharist is a perpetual Pentecost since every time we celebrate mass we receive the Holy Spirit who unites us more deeply with Christ and transforms us into him. It's during mass that in the liturgy the word the Holy Spirit seeks to lead us more deeply into the truth. During the Mass when He helps us to pray as we ought, to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, to recognize our God-given gifts and commit to use them for God's glory and other salvation. During the Mass we have the Epiclesis in which we, together with Mary and all the saints, call down the Holy Spirit upon the priests and the altar, totally to change bread and wine into Jesus' body and blood, and then call them down after the consecration to change men and women to one body and Spirit in Christ. It's at the end of Mass that we are sent out inflamed by the Spirit to proclaim the Gospel with ardor. So we prepare to go to Mass on Pentecost. Let us get ready for the way the Lord will send out the Holy Spirit to renew us and through us seek to renew the face of the earth. Happy Pentecost, everyone.